mind as that music fades into the distance there. It is indeed Radio Marinara on 3RRR. It is two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on 3RRR Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. Who's going to go first? Who's going to go first? I'll go. (laughs) I'm Ron Burton and I'm at home. And? Hi, it's from... And... Oh, it's Rex Hunter here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How smooth was that? <laughs> oh, thank goodness. We we actually got everybody. <laughs> um, so apologies uh, for the uh, longest dead air I think I've ever, ever had <laughs> in uh, my radio history. It turns out, it, uh, Tim Thorpe, you're listening. Um, <clears throat> my fault, my friend, not yours. Press the wrong button. <laughs> And I'm sitting here going, well, that's playing. It's not, I can't hear that. What's going on there? Anyway, we got there, didn't we? Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Oh. <laughs> Rex's dog's chipping in as well. The, the dogs are joining us as well. Um, <laughs> I think, where's that dog coming from? It's not mine. <laughs> My dog. Excellent. The- Thank you, Tim. Very much. Yeah, Tim, as always, wonderful music this morning and um, got us through there beautifully. Um, now, we've got a, a pretty big show, actually. There's a whole bunch of different cool stuff going on, a whole bunch of news. Brian, you and Fom have been watching Netflix avidly and got a review. Yes, My Octopus Teacher, which I don't think I've ever, since Finding Nemo, I don't think I've had so many people contact me and say, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. So um, Farm, I think, had watched it before. I had Terry Allen, our um, our somewhat absent this year, but we will catch up with Terry, uh, dive reporter, um, said the same thing. You've got to watch this. So anyway, watched it. Oh, it's glorious. Don't you think, Farm? She's having some audio problems at oh, the audio moment. audio problems? Yeah. Okay. It seems that she's struggling to... To That's right. get the right audio. Anyway, um, well, I'll wrap it on about my octopus teacher. <laughs> it's it's really lovely, and um, I'm not going to say any more about it now. I'll do it when the when the time comes. Yeah, but totally. It, yeah, it, it is a lovely documentary currently on Netflix, and uh, can totally recommend it. But um, stay tuned, and I'll do my review of that shortly. And Rex, you've been um, you tell us this has nothing to do with what was the cargo at all, but you've yes. been hunting Rex that used to be full of opium, as far as I can tell. Oh yeah, um, during the uh, early uh, sort of nineteenth uh, century, there was a actual opium war between uh, Britain and, and China. So we've got a little bit of that history uh, wrecked off Queenscliff. Awesome. We're going to... Talking about later. Awesome. That's very cool. Simon Musto is going to join us because I, I, I don't know whether people saw recently some very interesting stuff about um, about the... about cuvier whales diving far deeper like one third or one half longer again than they've within they've been recorded as diving and so um it, it's remarkable that you know so anyway he's going to join us we're going to talk about how the hell whales can hold their breath for three hours which it seems they can now form i think we've got you haven't we yes you nearly yes. nearly started without me but i caught up <laughs> i caught up thank you kent awesome hey now bron news uh sorry weather weather yeah, she says, flicking between screens. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm going to get whiplash by Here the we way are. in doing this okay, in the studio. Okay, forecast for the rest of today. Um, it is going to be 28, uh, nice and warm as it was yesterday. A bit of late rain becoming windy, uh, mostly high, uh, mostly cloudy, sorry. Very high chance of rain during the late afternoon and evening. Um, so get your washing out on the line. Now you've got a few hours. It's looking very <laughs> overcast now, but I think, we've, um, I think we've got a little bit of time. Chance of a thunderstorm late this afternoon and evening over the eastern suburbs. Winds northerly and light increasing up to 50 kilometres an hour this morning. Then shifting cold south to southwesterly to 30 kilometres metres an hour in the early evening. Tomorrow, rain and 14. So, wow, literally halving the maximum temperature from 28 today to 14 tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Cloudy, very high chance of rain most likely in the morning and winds southerly 15 to 25 kilometres an hour. Uh, Tuesday, 15, partly cloudy. Wednesday, shower or two and 17. Bit the same Thursday, up a little bit to 21. Bit the same Friday, around 20. And bit the same Saturday, 20. So there you go. Warm and windy, rain coming tonight, cold and rainy tomorrow, and um, then a bit showery for the rest of the week. The tide times at Port Phillip Heads, uh, we've just had a low tide at 8.28 this morning, and we are heading for a high tide at 2.25 this afternoon. Awesome. Brilliant. Hey, Newsy Bits, you have a couple of things you want to plug for? I do. Um, it is in the middle of Day by the Bay at the moment, which oh, is a festival organised by Remember the Wild. And it's great. It's called Day by the Bay, but actually it runs from the 28th of September till the <laughs> 11th of October. So it's a very, very long day by the bay. And that's part of the Victoria Nature Festival. Um, the Eco Centre is hosting a bunch of activities that you can do for free um, as part of Day by the Bay this week. We've got snorkelling from your lounge on Monday the 5th of October at 2pm, which is super fun. You get to ask all of your questions to our marine scientists and um, people who go out and snorkeling in the bay uh, a lot. Then do, there's you, do you have to wear a snorkel while you do this? Uh, like yes, actually, yeah, you can awesome. if you want to. Yes, it's, it's really lovely. Sometimes people turn up with their snorkels and everything on. So, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, we're very much into the theme there. Uh, then on Wednesday the 7th at 2 p.m., we've got sharks of Port Phillip Bay. So, if you ever have any shark questions, if you have kids, you will no doubt have shark questions all the time. Um, so, log on for that one, sharks of Port Phillip Bay. And then Penguins of Australia on Thursday, the 8th of October at 2 p.m. as well. So lots of really cool stuff to do. Um, yeah, ask all of your questions. That about is super those cool. Animals. And so we can put a plug on our Facebook for Absolutely. Those. Awesome. We'll so do that. Do and that there's morning. heaps of other stuff going on as well. There's a workshop today actually for the love of seaweed. There are sustainable <coughs> fishing workshops. Talks about Victoria's marine science by our leading marine scientists as well. And a splendid southern sea slug clay workshop by the VMPA where you learn how to make your nudie banks out of clay. <laughs> that is Super so fun cool. stuff. So, yeah. Day by the Bay would be the thing that people search for, Port Phillip Eco Centre, and they'll find all this. I will this. post a uh, Day by the Bay uh, roster and awesome. a program on our Facebook page. And then there's something else going oh, yeah, on too. Wednesday, the 7th of October at 6.30pm, the Yarra Riverkeeper Association is hosting a forum uh, about women, women's leadership in water management and environmental protection with... Um, some great speakers there. Um, Anna Richway from Abbotsford, uh, Riverbankers, Louisa McMillan from Mary Creek Management Committee, uh, Karen Traeger, who is the uh, operations manager at Yarra Riverkeeper Association, and myself. We will be uh, having a really lovely conversation with awesome. each other, forum style, for an hour uh, on Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. So, yeah, come along and learn about women's, women's leadership in water management. How fantastic. What a brilliant idea. So there's lots to do. Have you got? Do you want to? Do you got to plug a? Uh, do you want to plug something, Bron? 
I've got one here. This has come um, to us from the Victorian National Parks Association and it actually involves our very own Cade Mills. Um, the screaming headline here is Sea Dragon Search, calling upon the community to discover the dragons of the sea. So, I mean, really, who doesn't love a sea dragon? <laughs> They're actually our state emblem. Uh, but this is a new um, citizen science community-driven uh, project called Sea Dragon Search. It, I guess, picks up a bit of, um, nice. oh, I call it nudie watch, but it's... um. <laughs> <laughs> Every, Be every careful time with that. You, that. you yeah. might attract the wrong audience here, yeah. Bron. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they didn't call it Nudie Watch. It's such a better title. But anyway, <laughs> the Sea Slug Senses and Reef Watch. Um, anyway, Sea Dragon Search. So this so, is actually an initiative that came from, it was launched um, during the week, I think on Thursday. Yes, that was the first, um, by the Western Australia Museum, um, obviously in Perth, and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of San California, Diego. San Diego. Uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning to turn people's images of sea dragons into data. Oh, wow. So it's calling on people. If you're out there, if you take a photo of a sea dragon, um, you can send it through to the VNPA uh, and they will um, coordinate with the University of Western Australia. No, it isn't. Western Australian Museum and Scripps to, um, to start to pull together this database of sea dragons and actually try and work out, you know, what our sea dragons are, actually identify them, follow their movements. Um, the VNPA has done some research through its Reef Watch program and uh, started to unearth some information about our sea dragons. So it seems that um, it's looking like our own sea dragons can move as many as four kilometres from Portsea Pier to Sorrento Ferry in under five months. That's Seriously? a lot of space that's, for a little sea That's dragon. really fast for an animal that hardly swims. And if you think about their size too, <laughs> then you know, you're talking about that. that's like us moving from here to, I don't know, Wodonga. <laughs> You know, like that's a very, you know, like just as in moving slowly without being able to swim, as you say, for Yeah, but not wow. over the border, Ants. Not no, no, not, no, no, stay on this side in Madonga, wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> so I reckon that's awesome. We'll catch up. Oh, I think we might ask Kate about that when he's next in studio yeah, and talk cool. more about Sea Dragon Search. That is very cool. Hey, now we didn't mention too, um, which is partly why I think I'm discombobulated, is um, it, they've stolen our hour. If you're listening oh, yeah. and you're thinking, God, what are these people doing on? It should be Tim. I wake up to the joyous tones of Tim at this hour. It's not the hour you think it is. Daylight saving started. I don't know who it is, but I like to point out they've stolen my hour again. <laughs> and I have to wait six months to get my hour back. So I got really confused when savings. my alarm went off because the time was correct, of course, because the phones automatically update. Yes. But I got really confused because I got up and then I wandered out and, of course, the time's on the microwave <laughs> and the oven are completely different. And yep. I'm thinking, which one's right? Yeah, and it's funny because how we do this twice a year and it's always <laughs> confusing. We've I been know. doing this our entire <laughs> lives twice a year and we still can't deal with it when it happens. It just goes to show, doesn't it, like how hopelessly non-resilient we are. <laughs> oh, my God, I, I have to change a clock. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think it's stopped. one of those things you just do it and then you put it out of your yeah, yeah. brain and then it comes around six months later, as you said, farm, and it's just like, hey, what do we do? I had a how funny conversation. Work? I had a funny conversation last night with my 10-year-old who said, well, how does it work, though? Where does it go? And I said, well, <laughs> well, it doesn't kind of go anywhere. It just... And he said, what, is tomorrow just the 23 hours? And I went, yeah. And he said, so we just pretend like the hour never existed. And I went, yeah. So you just brought on your 10-year-old's first existential crisis, basically. 
Great. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah. So, um, anyway, if you are, that's why. Because Dale is having started and we're here. And um, I, this morning was a litany of... Oh, sorry, I know we're going we're gonna to play a track soon. We're going we're gonna to talk about multiple teacher. But I also drove the wrong direction to get here. <laughs> Whoops. Now, there's no excuse for that, Anne. You know so, that, right? So, the fact that there was that much dead air this morning is just, you know, that was just going to happen. Like, anyway. Yes, nine o'clock. They stole our hour. You have to wait six months to get it back. Bron and Thumb, you have been spending your time watching a lot of Netflix, I understand. And I have seen my octopus teacher pop up and people have told me I should watch it. But you guys have taken the plunge. Who's going to kick off? Bron, you want to kick off? Yeah, I'll kick off. So, yes, My Octopus Teacher, it's um, it's trending at the moment on Netflix. It's a documentary. It goes for about an hour and 25 minutes, um, directed by Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed. And it's basically the story of a relationship, or you could even say an obsession, of a man called Craig Foster with – and it's – look an octopus but it's basically an entire ecosystem and how it forms a kind of therapy for him to come through what's been a bit of a life crisis that emerges so it's set in south africa uh, on the western cape um, which is also known as the cape of storms Um, so to compare with australia underwater it's about the same as the equivalent i don't know i reckon northern tasmania like the northern tasmanian um, coastline yeah that's right so it's quite cool waters and uh, beautiful kelp forests there as well yeah lots of kelp forests and they're absolutely stunning so craig grew up on the rocky intertidal and uh, you know spent his his favorite thing to do was to go down there as it was for many of us um and go and check out the the creatures in rock pools spent a lot of time in rock pools and then grew up and became a filmmaker and um went through you know his life as a filmmaker and then had this period of time where he went to the Kalahari Desert to make a documentary called The Great Dance and had an experience with some of the master trackers um, and uh, sort of really taken in by their connection to nature and this sort of becomes um, relevant a little bit later in the documentary but but he kind of had this point where he felt like there was something really missing in his life so he'd sort of had these early childhood experiences and then grown up and sort of got into adult life and realised that he was really missing this connection um, to nature nature and not long after that experience what you sort of feel is a bit of career burnout um and it's quite clear that he's had um some mental health challenges that then had a flow-on impact to his family um took him to quite a dark place and so he decides that maybe what he should do is to go back to what he loved best about his childhood and help him reclaim some of that lost connection not just for nature and the environment but also for some of that meaning in his life and so he goes into the water and that's when the the documentary really takes off Wow. And um, so hang on, that yeah. little in, that little explainer there, is that like the first minute? You kind of go, oh, background, you know, why I'm doing this? And then all of a sudden you're in. Yeah, it's kind uh, of the first five minutes or yeah, so. Right. Yeah, huh. yeah, so just that, that background story and um, and especially his relationship or his time with the, the son Bushman, the, the master trackers, the yeah. original uh, indigenous peoples of that uh, region of Africa, Southern Africa, um, becomes quite important later in the piece as well. And it's, um, yeah, huh. so it, 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 it's showing you the footage as well uh, that he shot when he was younger, you know, with mm. the long hair and, um, yeah, really learning from these indigenous peoples what it is like to connect to nature in a way that it immerses you rather than you visiting nature, really being a part of it. And that is kind of what mm. he strives for um, now, by going underwater. Now, Bron, we're not going to have any spoiler alerts here, are we? Do we need to announce well, any spoiler alerts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the title of the documentary is in itself a spoiler alert because okay. it sort of gives you a sense of yeah, what yeah. comes next. Yeah. Um, so he, 
the, a few things really jumped out um, about this. Oh, there's so many things that jump out. The cinematography is absolutely stunning. Mm. And if you're really missing being underwater, yes. this is the documentary to watch. <laughs> or not. I cried for the first 10 minutes just because I was seeing the ocean and somebody in it. I was like, oh, my God, I miss it so much. Uh, you know what I miss? Because my 5Ks don't get me near the ocean. I miss the smell. Yeah. Yeah. And that and I think that's kind of like, anyway, it, so it conjured up for you, Bron, that whole, I mean, obviously we get what it did to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I was bawling my eyes out <laughs> for the first 10 minutes. What about you, Bron? Was it just that whole kind of immersion? Yeah, I think a, a, just a deep appreciation for that environment. Yeah. Um, and we talk about it every Sunday, of course, but to, you really feel like you're being immersed in it when you oh. when you sort of follow him into the water. It's And it's stunning. It's just this absolutely beautiful, pristine part of um, the South African coast. And when you sort of go in there with him and you you just sort of see this incredible kelp fronds just sort of rising from the, the sea floor all the way up mm. to the surface, it's not particularly deep. Um, and it's diving but without a tank. And this is the other thing. He does it all on snorkel, everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a free so, diver. Yeah. Wow. So, so when you think about the fact that he obviously develops a relationship with, with a resident um, octopus, to be able to do that without having scuba, to be able to just do that on a free breath hold is really, I just kept, <laughs> I kept going, put a tank on, you can stay down there for longer. <laughs> yeah. Did, and not to mention, not to mention the cold water as well. Of he's, course. He's, he's mm. pretty hardcore because those waters are quite cold and he, he goes in there without a wetsuit and he does that, he chooses that on purpose because he wants yep. to feel part of wow. of the environment and really experiencing it in, in all of its forms and including the cold and the hectic waves because it gets wild down there and he yeah. still goes in it's incredible it's very very similar if you're from if you're listening here and you're from either victoria or tasmania you'll relate to these waters <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah right it, not for the cold absolutely and it gets down to eight degrees in oh, the yeah. water it's right. freezing um and yeah i mean it can go from it's very much like here the water can go from being really calm and absolutely glorious to just being really you know the sea was angry that day my friends crashing <laughs> <laughs> like waves and sort of walking in off the rocky shore just getting smashed by these waves thinking wow incredible and you do really feel how exposed he is as well and, and sort of that again that appreciation of how he really wants to immerse himself not just in the water but in the entire environment um i don't know about you farm i felt really triggered there's a few like as i said the the cinematography is fantastic but these images of just like huge volumes of jellyfish floating by it's like you're gonna get stung dude what are you doing yeah yeah wetsuit. yeah it, it definitely takes you the whole documentary really takes you on that beautiful story arc you know that we love so yeah, much yeah. as humans so and what i really like about this documentary is that it is not your average nature doco like mm. you learn a lot about the creatures that live there and how they relate to each other because he catches it all on camera and he tells it as a story but what you don't get with other nature documentaries uh, often enough, in my opinion, is the actual emotional connection mm. that the filmmaker has to uh, to the ecosystem. So um, some of the things that stood out for me is not just the relationship between a human and an other than human creature and them reaching out to each other and, and, and forming this bond, um, but also 
through him observing the world around him down there so closely every single day, he really starts to understand how everything is connected and interacts with each other. And huh. there is a beautiful part in the in the documentary where he kind of gets a bit philosophical. And, you know, as a, a biologist doing lots of field work, I can relate to this. Like how much as a human visitor to this ecosystem can I interfere when mm. my friend the octopus yeah, is yeah, under yeah. threat, for yeah. example? Like do I interfere or do I let nature take its course? Yeah, yeah. Like how is the emotional aspect of bonding with a wild creature, how does it affect um, where the boundaries are of between humans and nature? Yeah. Or are there no boundaries? Because I am now part of this ecosystem, I belong here. Can I interact in a way that, you know, changes the course of nature or should I leave it? It's a very interesting uh, philosophical question. Oh, I'm going to have to watch this. Um, I'm going to ask you both um, out of five sea stars. What's it get? Oh, I'd give, I'd give it a five. Yeah. Five Hands out down. of five? Yeah. Five. Oh, tentacles down. A five. <laughs> <laughs> All eight tentacles down. <laughs> we got we got a five from five. What about you, but I've never given a five and I never do because I always feel like there's room for improvement with anything. <laughs> um but I would give it a four and a half out Whoa, of five. And that's probably the highest rating I've ever given. It's oh, really, yeah. really, really good. And it, it really kind of delves in it's not just about you know, there's it delves into him and his sort of emotional, um, personal journey from where he comes from to where he ends up. Um, important thing to mention too, that what came out of this is, it's, it, this is what happened with so many great docos, you know, like The Cove and Blackfish. Um, he has founded an organisation called Sea Change Project and it's it, it's to involve a growing community of divers dedicated to the protection of kelp forests. So it's very specific yeah, right. about kelp forest protection. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we should put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. Um, but, yeah, look, it's wonderful. My Octopus Teacher, if you've just tuned in, is what we've been reviewing on Netflix. Uh, it goes for about an hour and a half, hour and 25 minutes. Um, it won't – you won't feel like you need a break. You'll just want to stay. And when it finishes, you just want to go back to the start and watch it all over oh, again. Oh, wow. Wow. That is fantastic. Okay, I'm going to watch it now. I keep seeing it pop up in the recommendations, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of have to watch it. Hey, you're on Radio America. You're on Radio Marinara. Uh, we seem to have dropped Bron actually out of the call. I'm going to have to bring Bron back in as soon as I can. But um, we'll see how we go. Um, so, if you, during the week, you may have, or during the last couple of weeks, you may have seen some uh, media around um, Cuvier whales and their deep dive. Did you catch this? Uh, I did not, which is it's a miracle. Very, very cool. It's very, it was hidden a bit. I can't wait for this segment. But in um, basically, in some work that originally came out, I think it was in the Journal of Experimental Biology, um, a bunch of researchers went back and analysed um, some new data about whale breath hold journeys and um, they found some extraordinary things and I won't give it all away but basically whales were were some of them were able to hold their breath for three hours so three hours yeah, yeah a lot longer than ever before only one particular species anyway for over 20 years marine ecologist Simon Moster who's also the founder of Wild Diaries which is a very cool um, little kind of travel nature travel thingy he's been exploring and studying ocean megafauna I've seen Simon about penguins and um, whales and dolphins. And anyway, he's been learning about the behaviour and how they connect to their world. And he joins us this morning to talk about some of this research that originally was in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Good morning, Simon, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning. How are you, Anthony? Very well. Now, these authors of this um, particular 
um, paper, they went back over a whole bunch of um, data about the diving capabilities of Cuvier's whales. Um, and they found one that held its breath for nearly three hours, which I think mm. is extraordinary. And now, before we talk about, you know, how on earth a whale could do that, um, uh, you've actually dived with some of these um, Kevin's whales. So I thought we might start with the basics. You know, where, where, how are, what do they look like? How big are they? Where have you dived with them? Okay, well, first of all, I haven't dived with them, uh, but I've seen them on, on many occasions. So Cuvier's beak whale is one of uh, a two, three, two to three dozen species of whale that you find in the world that are collectively called beaked. Beaked, not beached. Uh, beaked whales <laughs> yes. because they have a they have a beak like a, a bit like a bottlenose dolphin has a beak. Uh, they're they're responsible for about probably about a third of a quarter to a third of all the whales and dolphins in the world. But they're amongst the least known animals on the planet, which yeah. is what makes them so fascinating to researchers because they they live in the they're consummate o- ocean livers. They're they're just not you just don't find them anywhere near the coast. So where you do see them is generally in very very deep water. And they're, they're very specialized, obviously, very unique animals. They're, they range in size from uh, the size of a very big dolphin to up to something that's, uh, you know, the bottom of those whales that are, you know, about sort of 15 meters long. Oh, really? Uh, they can get that big? Huh. Yeah, yeah. Cuvier's big whales grow, grow to, you know, grow to, you know, commonly between sort of six and eight meters. Yeah. They're quite large animals. And they have this uh, beak that's sort of, emanates from the tip of a sloping forehead, so they're sometimes called a goose-beaked whale because they have a, a hmm. headed shape, a bit like a goose, goose's beak. The other interesting thing about most beaked whales, not all, but most, is that they don't have any functional teeth. And oh. so the the male of a cuvier's beaked whale actually has teeth. It just has two very tiny kind of nub-like teeth that stick out the bottom of the lower jaw. In fact, I was in uh, eastern Indonesia last uh, October last, and we uh, we saw Cuvier's beak whales, and I took a series of photographs of uh, group surfacing. And there's one really nice, really interesting photo, which when I zoom it in, just shows the tip of the beak emerging from the water, and you can just see these two little rounded teeth sort of sticking out the lower jaw. But those teeth don't do anything, as far as we can tell. Maybe they're, oh. they're used in a bit of do they fight with them or something? Because yeah. if it's only in the males, do they have scars when you see their they- skin? They do, they do, and they probably fight a little bit, uh, I'm sure, but we, no one really knows. Um, How interesting. They, they, they feed using, largely using suction. And actually, if you look at an animal closely, uh, if you do ever get the chance to see one, unfortunately, stranded on a beach, they have these kind of flaps in the side of the mouth that uh, we guess open up. And, they, and then they and suck things in. Stuck suck their prey in, as I wrote in an article yesterday, like spaghetti. So, uh, hang on, only, he, only, yeah. which sounds a lot like what a baleen whale does. However, they are teethed whales, aren't they? Even though they, they don't have they're, teeth. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, they're in a, they're in a, t- a different family. Yeah, I guess to, they are. Yeah, yeah. To others, yeah. But, uh, but yes, that's right. They have a very, very different biology. So uh, what are they eating? Extraordinary. Um, Do we well, know? Most, mostly squid, yeah. The yeah. Cuvier's big whale stranded... Uh, I can't actually remember the exact year. Um, I myself and David Donnelly, who's a regular on this show, yeah, yeah. Uh, what were, had the um, thrill of uh, all being called. There was a live bait wheat well stranded on Wilson's Promontory many years ago, and we, we were helicoptered over to the eastern shore. And uh, by the time we got there, it had sadly died. 
uh, an autopsy was done on that animal, and it was full of squid beaks. Yeah, and some wow. of those squid beaks were quite large, you know, sort of, uh, you know, half the size of a fist or more. And uh, oh. one of them, uh, Mark Norman from Museum mm. of Victoria, identified as a glass squid, which rivaled giant squid for size. So they're feeding on anything from these very big squid to most most of the squid they're eating are quite small. I mean, but they, they're well. potentially taking on a squid that's basically their size. Potentially in length. Yeah, no wonder they got size. scars. Yeah. yeah, you know, we could spend yeah, the rest well, of the show talking about you know what they eat and who they are. But I really want to get to this diving question because I think it's it's <laughs> remarkable. So no, now none of us are whale physiologists. We have to put it out there. There aren't actually many whale physiologists in the world. But um, I, I, you know, how on earth do they do it? You know, have they got bigger lungs. Have they got longer intake? Do they have more hemoglobin? Have they got better muscles? Do they metabolize CO two in a different way? I mean, how on earth can something take a breath on the surface and then three hours later take another breath like what, what's happening Simon well okay so 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 the the, the science is still very very in its early stages yeah. but the, pretty much every possible way you could imagine they're adapted to uh, breath hold they're adapted to breath hold uh, better than we are um, and I, I I've done a fair bit of reading about it recently and and the thing that, that I think for me is, is interesting is I, I've, like many others in Melbourne, have been in lockdown for the last six months. So I'm suffering perhaps more um, than many others in, the, in Australia, at least, from uh, a lack of exercise. And when I do go out and, and exercise for the first time, the first thing I feel is a, is a lack of breath. And the second feel, thing I feel is sore muscles. Yeah, lactic massive muscle. Yeah, yeah. So we can all, all empathise with that. Well, you know, we're air breathing, uh, whereas it's, it appears that B12s, the more we learn, are uh, anaerobic breathing. So they're, they're actually less dependent on air breathing. And, and that's obviously quite unusual for mammals. But we do do it. So the red, the red fibres in your muscles are, is the colour of a, a, a pro, complex protein called myoglobin. Yeah. And myoglobin is responsible for the slow twitch muscles, which slowly release oxygen. So when you do a marathon, for example, you're not drawing so much on your aerobic activity. Your aerobic, your aerobic activity is actually breaking down lactic acid. It's keeping you within boundaries to avoid muscle damage. But yeah. your, a lot of your um, body oxygen is drawing out of your muscles using myoglobin. And it turns out that beak whales are really, really good at that. They, they're oh, wow. absolutely jacked. And in fact, when you cut one open, not that you would, but we, in Wilson's Prom, I saw this very, very deep red um, mus muscular tissue, absolutely packed full. Now, that beak whale actually died for three hours, 42 minutes. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, it's nearly four hours, sorry. I should have said that. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. almost twice as long as the previously yeah. longest record. And I thought about this again, and I thought, well, you know, I, I did a 24K walk uh, from Cape Patterson to, uh, sorry, to Cape Patterson from uh, Phillip Island last year. And it, that's unusual for me. It's probably the only time I've done it in 10 years. And if I was a scientist studying me at the moment in lockdown, and I was suddenly to do that walk next month, I'd... I'd because it would throw them a complete curveball. I think they we wouldn't know what to think. Uh, because I think what we've been doing with these whales over time is going, oh, well, they're diving for this long and they're using probably this much energy because we know that they can probably eat this much food and therefore that's their limit. And all of a sudden the animal's just gone, no. That's incredible. <laughs> but but Simon, do you, know, do you know how they, like how do they um, 
charge up that myoglobin, <laughs> so to say? Like, how do they do they come up and and just like do this yeah, like hectic breathing or, or something, something like yeah. that, or, or do they do uh, ab crunches every morning when they wake <laughs> up to get extra muscle so they can store this myoglobin? Uh, how does it work? I'm gonna have a I'm well, gonna have a punt at this. I suspect. We don't really know, but but anyway, no, go for it because <laughs> this spoiler. Is Simon, it's the thing about we this. We know we know very little. We know I, nothing. I usually, look, look, I'm an ecologist, blood, and I usually go on the premise of um, how things generally work, and the. We know that there was a supposition, and this was written by the authors of the paper from North Carolina, that maybe you'd expect animals doing deeper dives to spend longer at the surface recuperating. Yeah, like um, supersaturating or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, deep breathing kind of. Yeah. yeah, they do these sort of shallow dives interspersed with long dives. So they thought, well, then maybe they're recovering. Um, it turns out there's no correlation. So, oh, yeah. again, we have no idea. However, what we do know is that, yes, uh, uh, big whales have obviously a lot more myoglobin. They have a lot more heat. They also have a higher density of hemoglobin than we do, so they can actually absorb ah. oxygen faster into their body. But they also breathe very fast. Um, blue whales... Now, can I just, just for one, one tick, sorry, yep. before we get into blue whales, just yep. so for those that don't know, hemoglobin is the little thing in your blood that carries the oxygen to your muscles to stick it in the myoglobin. Apologies to the physiologist for that plain English <laughs> statement. <laughs> that but that good. just for those people, you know, you grab it, it goes into your lungs, oxygen goes in your lungs, hemoglobin goes, gets it, sticks it in your muscle. And it's also the uh, the colour red yes, that's the caused by hemoglobin. Yeah, so there we go. Anyway, you are going to say blue that, whales? That's it, yeah. So, so blue whales um, breathe at a rate of about when they take a breath, fill a 1,500-litre lung capacity in about 0.2 seconds every 20 seconds. <laughs> um, if we, we did that, we would. Well, you're, a di- you're all divers, so you know the, the consequences oh, yeah. of overinflating your lungs too quickly. Uh, <laughs> it's not something that anybody really wants to do. We breathe quite slowly, um, and we also breathe, um, we breathe involuntarily, whereas animals breathe, uh, whales and dolphins breathe uh, voluntarily, yes. so they decide when they're going to take a breath. So they're constantly aware of their body oxygen, and they're doing what they need to do to to mitigate it. So it seems that they're just capable of um, recuperating for substantial periods, taking in plenty of oxygen enough to break down that lactic acid, wow. um, and that's probably their main limiting factor. They just and the lactic acid, by the way, is what you get when you get cramp. Yeah, the pain when you get cramped. I've just got this image of that cuvius whale coming up and, you know, they're probably chatting to the other cuvius whales as they do and just saying, oh, God, that was a long one. Oh, I've got to stretch my my fins out. Oh, lactic acid build up. I have to hang out in the shallows here for a little bit. But he'll have a really full belly, so he'll be like really sluggish and going like, oh, Oh. I could really use a cup of tea right now after that meal. Hey, Simon, that's been fantastic. And and as you mentioned very earlier, that um, this when you saw them was in the Banda Sea. Now, we're not going to talk about the Banda Sea now, but I'm going to get you back on later because you spent quite a lot of time in the Banda Sea. And the Banda Sea is one of these remarkable remarkable seas that we've we probably don't cover enough and we don't know enough of and so would you come back later in the year and we'll chat about the band of sea yeah i would love to awesome hey thanks so much simon for joining us this morning and chatting about uh cuvier's beak whales and how on earth they can hold their breath for that long my pleasure thanks for having me awesome cheers cheers anthony thanks everyone
Simon Musto there, who ecologist and uh, founder of Wild Diaries. Uh, you, you've got to go and see some of his stuff. We'll stick a link on our um, Facebook as well. He's written a great little article about that um, that um, that research piece as well. Um, so um, it just – can you imagine that? Yeah, I'm, my head is spinning. Like, just, I have a million questions right now yeah. that all have the same answer. We don't know, probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but it, it really, yeah, my imagination is running wild here. And I, I just, uh, you know, I mean, they obviously have very, very efficient chemoglobin. They obviously can do that. And then, and then that's so interesting that they have so much more myoglobin in their muscle and they shove it all in there. And yeah, then slowly, incredible. slowly, slowly, while they're down there, they're also, kind of, they're breathing in a way, but they're not breathing. The oxygen's coming out and fueling them, but it's coming slowly out of their muscles. It's so incredible that that has evolved over those millions yeah. of years um, to be like that. So they can be so, so good at hunting at those depths of the ocean, which are so inhospitable. Also, I always wonder, oh, they they have sonar, don't they, these ones? I've got a feeling some of the big ones do. Yeah, yeah because, because they're a little bit like I'm always wondering, how do they find those squid? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really dark down there. What? <laughs> <laughs> <all> that music. <laughs> Triple R. <laughs> yes, indeed. You are on three Triple R. I do actually call that music. I call it beautiful music. That was um, Sing About Life by Titus. Um, a wonderful album and a very, I just realised, an oldie, a major oldie. I can't even remember how long ago that was. We have got about uh, 11 minutes, 10 minutes until the doctors are on air. And um, we, we really need some intro music. Rex Hunter, we need some, you know, we need some kind of, you know, swashbuckling, you know, I don't know, intro for you. Sea Hunt style. <laughs> you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, get Jeff on the job. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. We could do that. Absolutely. Um, let, I, I'm going to, I've got a, a couple of quick messages to play, and then I'm yeah. going to come back and I'm going to try and find a little bit of intro music for you <laughs> in the interim, and we'll, we'll kick off. <sighs> Triple R, Immaculate Reception. I figured that was the best intro for you, Rex. Immaculate Reception. So tell me. What, a little bit disappointing, but yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to spend more time next time finding you something. <laughs> so now, the Will of the Wisp. Will of the Wisp, yeah. It was, um, it was uh, an opening clipper, so... Uh, Sorry, a what? An open clipper. Okay. So we'll go, go backwards, wind back to, uh, it was wrecked in 1853 off Queensland, but we wind back to 1839 and there was a, there was a great, well, the UK was, it had a great, um, a great trade, one-way trade with uh, China at that time, where yeah. mostly they were bringing things out of China and China didn't want to trade with the UK because they didn't want any of their useless bits of material and cargoes and materials and that but what china was exporting was uh, tea porcelain you know fine fine uh, silk and all those, these multi multi these day million dollar products and the chinese didn't want anything except um british silver so the coffers of china were getting fuller and fuller of all this silver and uh, the british were quite upset they had nothing to try to uh, trade with them so they got uh, through uh, East India Company, they managed to get quite a few Chinese addicted to, to uh, opium on opium. 
It was part of a kind of, I mean, it's basically part of a strategy, wasn't it? To, yeah, it was a strategy. To, yeah. to, well, a, they, a market they strategy. The yeah. Yeah, so they, they got Chinese addicted to uh, opium, and there was a, a massive, massive, and this was by, uh, um, banned by the Chinese government at the time, or get the uh, rules. The emperor, yeah. But um, obviously, you know, where, where there's quick, a quick dollar to be, or pound to be made, there was a... Um, someone's going to cut in so they uh started building these uh clipper ships small clippers like this the will of the wisp was only i'm going to talk in feet here so 76 feet by 18 by 10.5 feet so that's um, only so 20 it's, it's less than it's about 24 meters long yeah yeah, yeah. yeah smaller than the alma Pal, but armed to the teeth so it was um carried because because there was every chance the Chinese would uh, attack this because they were banned, they, um, they built armed vessels. So, you know, probably had 12, 12, 14 guns on board, something like that. <sighs> Hang on, it's only, four, it's only 24 metres long and it's got 12 or 14 <laughs> it's guns. It's a lot of guns for such a small boat. <laughs> so this so, yeah, is like the, the wooden boat. Serious. This is like the wooden boat version of the, the drug runner's Zodiac that's got all the big engines and armed to the teeth. But with same, guns, yeah. Same idea. Yeah, yeah. Nothing changes. So, um, yeah, just like pirate vessels get out and they're big zodiacs, you know, doing 60 mile an hour across the water, 68, 80 mile an hour. But this, the, so, the Willow Wisp wouldn't have been able to do that fast, would it? No, uh, it probably would have got uh, 12, 15 knots out of it, which is pretty quick. Um, so, this, was, uh, this actually led to the Opium Wars from 1839 through to 1842 and there was a second one from 1856 to 1860 so um in the end one of the uh, part of the deal was uh, hong kong got to uh, yeah. have um the british got to have hong kong for over 100 years so that that was how sort of hong kong ended up in british hands so then we have the uh we'll go back to the clipper so the um the opening clipper well, the Wisp, there was, a, there was an advert for it. It arrived in Melbourne during the gold rush in 1850, June 1853. Oh, so it was no longer running opium. Like, I was trying to no, work out what no, it was no, doing it was bringing opium, opium to Melbourne. Okay, but it was... Oh, the, the opium war, that opium war was over by gotcha. that stage. So um, they had to find other means. And with the gold rushes on, all ships, every ship, every tub that could make it out to Australia would load up with cargo and head out. Huh. And sometimes they wouldn't leave because there wasn't enough crew crew for them to get on board. Oh, of course, because everyone wanted to get, wanted to get off. Everyone wanted to get off and go to the gold fields. Yeah, They're they not going to... Yeah. and go to a golf, yeah, the gold yeah. fields. So there was a massive sort of one-way trade. Hobson's Bay was full of vessels, you know, swinging an anchor because they couldn't leave because there, was, there wasn't enough crew. So the uh, the Willow Wisp was put up for sale. It was advertised. This is the auction notice. It says, um, clipper-built schooner, Willow the Wisp. This vessel was built expressly for the opium trade. <laughs> I'm afraid to advertise its wares or what it was doing. Which clients were they trying to attract? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just your, your drug running type of clients. Yeah, right. We need a fast boat with lots of guns. Let's yeah. buy that one. So that that was sold, and it just became a general trader from there. So it would trade between sort of uh, Melbourne and uh, Tassie, and then across to New Zealand. So it was, you know, October was bringing back a really mundane car, cargo of uh, timber, bricks, and sort of potatoes. <laughs> I kind of dropped down the scale a fair way and ran ashore off Queenscliff. 
So we all, all know Queensland, uh, yeah. off Swan Island there. Um, and to just hit with what's called William Sand, which is one of the one of the sandbanks up uh, to, the, to the east of the West Channel, if you know, sort of just above Queenscliff there, yeah. off Swan Island. So I ran aground there and just couldn't get off. And um, ironically, the local Queenscliff pirates got to the vessel and stripped it of just about everything before the owners could get there. And, and the <laughs> Wait, Queenscliff had pirates? Oh, that's another story. Oh We've got God. to talk about that. Yes. Oh, didn't they? <laughs> They had their own wrecking crew there. Yeah. yeah so uh, it was basically stripped of everything, including the copper sheathing off on the outside of the vessel. Isn't that extraordinary? Let's come. Hey, hey let's do that in a future topic. The the Queenscliff Pirates. I mean, quite. Unquote. Oh, well, yeah, there were wreckers. Yeah. yeah, let's let's do that. Yes, hey, please, now we've Rex. got about we've got about thirty seconds left. Can you no, dive on this thing? Uh, it's it's in the protected zone of the uh, yeah. unfortunately off. Swan Island, which is a all hush hush area. Yes, yeah, don't talk about where, it. Shh. We're ATO hide out. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> so uh, there was an um, excavation carried out in the sort of 90s, on the 90s, early 2000s by Heritage Victoria and a bunch from MWAV. So it, it is known and uh, it's really, really interesting and historic site. That is sensational. So you can go there, but you've got to get a permit. Well, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Unless, unless you're a pirate, <laughs> yeah, 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 you can yeah, just yeah. go. Sure. <laughs> and <laughs> unless you you know somebody in uh, the ACES, which you can't talk about, Swan Island. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, that is brilliant. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, great history. And Brian, it looks like we've got you back to say goodbye. <laughs> Oh my god! I knocked a cup of coffee into a power board. I thought about this. Oh, oh, no. oh, oh, oh add, that, add that to the list of uh, COVID disasters. Yeah, it's, it's today. No one go outside. <laughs> hey, sensational! Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks to our guest, um, Simon Musto. Talking about Cuvier Wales, we're going to come back and talk about Vanda Sea later in the year. Uh, Rex Hunter, we're going to talk about the Queenscliff Pirates, uh, and. Um, Thanks to you both, Bron and Fun. No worries. See Thanks, you next time. It's been a great one. And you next week? I have no idea. I'm just trying to get up the schedule. <laughs> well, let's just you let's just got the house powered up again. <laughs> oh my god, the house was paid. We're gonna go. Um, wait for it. The doctors will be up next. They're all ready to go. Uh, see you soon. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.